Well, I welcome you this morning to the adult Bible class for those who are in the building here and those watching online. We trust the Lord will meet with us as we study the Word. We're going to take a moment's prayer before we open the Scripture, so let's just unite together in prayer, please. Our gracious God, loving Father, we thank Thee once again. This Thy day we've come into Thy house to meet together to worship Thee. Thank Thee, Lord, we gather round the open book, and we pray that Thy blessing will be upon us this day. Remember all our children and our young people in our Sunday school and Bible classes. We pray, Father, that Thou would give help to Thy servants as they would break the bread of life. We pray, O God, that Thou wilt, uh, Lord, implant truth deep within the hearts of our children and our young people, that they would walk in accordance to Thy ways and in Thy will. Lord, to that end, we pray for their salvation. For those who are not saved, we pray that Thou wilt speak powerfully to them for those who are saved, we pray that Thou will continue Your work upon their soul. Lord, that Thou would bless them abundantly. Lord, now give help, we pray. I pray, O God, that Thou will wash me and forgive me of my sin and fill me with the Spirit. May the Word be a blessing, O God. May it be a means to strengthen, to edify, to instruct Thy people. O God, we pray that being grounded in these things, we will not be blown about with every wind and doctrine, Help us to know the book. Help us to live the book. Lord, we pray that Thou will bless us now, even as we meet together. For this we ask in the Saviour's precious and His worthy name. Amen. This morning we're turning to Exodus chapter 12, please. So Exodus chapter 12. And we'll read uh, the opening 14 verses of this chapter together. So Exodus chapter 12 and... We'll commence reading at verse 1. So let's hear and give attention to the word of the Lord. And the Lord spake unto Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, This month shall be unto you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. Speak ye unto all the congregation of Israel, saying, In the tenth day of this month they shall take to them every man a lamb, according to the house of their fathers a lamb for an house, and if a household be too little for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next unto his house take it according to the number of the souls. Every man according to his eating shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish. A meal of the first year ye shall take it out from the sheep or from the goats. And ye shall keep it up until the fourteenth day of the same month. And the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it in the evening. They shall take of the blood and strike it on the two side posts and on the upper door posts of the houses, wherein they shall eat it. And they shall eat the flesh in that night, roast with fire and unleavened bread, and with bitter herbs they shall eat it. Eat not of it raw nor sodden at all with water, but roast with fire, his head with his legs, and with the pertinence thereof. And ye shall let nothing of it remain until the morning, and that which remaineth of it until the morning ye shall burn with fire. And thus shall ye eat it, with your loins girded, your shoes on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and ye shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt this night, and will smite all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. 
And the blood shall be to you for a token upon the houses where ye are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And the plague shall not be upon you to destroy you when I smite the land of Egypt. And this day shall be unto you a memorial, and ye shall keep it a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. Ye shall keep it a feast by an ordinance forever. Amen. And we'll end there, verse 14, trusting the Lord will bless the reading of his word to our hearts. Now, the New Testament provides uh, abundant proof of the typical significance of the Old Testament. We read in Romans chapter 15 and the verse 4, For whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope. Furthermore, the incidental details and experiences in the history of the children of Israel are used as typical, uh, in a typical way by the Holy Spirit uh, to instruct us in the ways of God. We read, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 11. Now all these things happened unto them for ensamples, and they were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world are come. And such statements encourage diligent study and the assurance, assure us of the spiritual enrichment and the certainty that we will find Christ in the shadows as we look into such things. And that's why we began to consider the seven feasts that we find listed for us in Leviticus 23. Now, we noted that they are the feasts of the Lord. Often they are wrongly referred to as the feasts of Israel. They are the feasts of the Lord. They were not the invention of men, but they were instituted by God for His own worship and good pleasure, putting His people in remembrance of Him. Now, being the feasts His feasts, He was the one who ordered them and gave the regulations concerning them. And having said that, we've seen that these feasts, they pertained, why they are the Lord's feasts, they did pertain to Israel. They related to special events in their history and to their agrarian calendar. The instructions in particular were given to that nation. They were to be observed by them, and they were a mark, a distinguishing mark that they were the covenant people of God. So they pertained they belong to the Lord, the feasts of the Lord that pertain to Israel, and they also pertain to certain particular times in the year. And we saw that we're generally divided up into the spring and the autumn feasts. They couldn't be observed at any time, but at the times appointed by God. And they gave the people opportunity to come together. And there was three mandatory feasts that the meals had to come to each year. But those feasts gave the opportunity at particular and certain times of the year for the people to come together to worship God, to call to remembrance what He had done, and therefore stir up a spirit of gratitude and adoration within their hearts. Now, we also noted that those feasts being called holy convocations, they were not only a call to remembrance, but... That word, uh, it signifies a rehearsal. And they were a rehearsal in type of what the Messiah would come to accomplish. And then finally, we considered the precursor to those seven feasts of the Lord in the weekly Sabbath, a day when we still are to come together and feast upon Christ as He's expounded from the Scripture. Those seven feasts, they were never meant to replace the weekly Sabbath. And that Sabbath was clearly distinguished in Leviticus 27 or 23 from those seven feasts. 
the weekly Sabbath. It is an institution from creation, patterned there. The pattern was established by God of that weekly Sabbath for our good and for our benefit. And you know, that distinction being a precursor and not really one of those seven special feasts throughout the year, it safeguards us from the teaching that we are no longer under the obligation to uh, observe and keep the Sabbath day. Because there's those who would say, well, that really that Sabbath there in Leviticus 23, it constitutes really there's eight feasts of the Lord. And since the Lord has fulfilled the ceremonial law, which included those feasts, the seven feasts, well, they would like to say, well, therefore, we're no longer under the obligation. But clearly, the weekly Sabbath, that special time to come together, feast upon the Lord, do our bodies, our souls good, was a creation ordinance, not something here that happened in Leviticus 23. Now, if the question was asked to name one of the feasts of the Lord, I dare say that the most popular answer would be the feast of the Passover. It is the first of the spring feasts, and it is the most frequently mentioned festival of all the feasts in the Scripture. It's mentioned 48 times in the Old Testament and 23, or sorry, 28 times in the New Testament. More than any other event in Israel's history, the Passover provides for us the clearest picture of of redemption, deliverance by a blood sacrifice. Now, in Leviticus 23, it's only mentioned in one verse, verse 5. It tells us there, in the 14th day of the first month that even is the Lord's Passover. But we have outlined for us in greater detail in Exodus 12, the feast of the Passover. Now, we don't have a difficult job to ascertain that this is Uh, has a typical significance. When we consider what the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 7, he said there that Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. Or we could think of the Apostle Peter. He wrote in 1 Peter 1, verses 18 and 19, For as much as you know you were not redeemed with corruptible things such as silver and gold, from your vain conversation received, by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb, without blemish and without spot. So it's so clear that there is a typical significance in the Passover feast. Now, before we come to Exodus 12, we need to set the scene as always. In the setting, as you well know, it is Egypt. Jacob had brought his family down to Egypt 430 years previous for food. The family had grown extensively in those years, and the Pharaoh that knew Joseph and the family, well, he had died and been replaced by another uh, Pharaoh. The children of Israel, by this time, they were in bondage. And their cry, because of their affliction, was going up to God. And God had come to visit them. God had come to deliver them just as He had promised. He had sworn to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob that he would bring his people out and that they would have the land of Canaan for an inheritance. And this was the time for God to fulfill his promise. Now, nine supernatural plagues had already had their devastating effect upon Egypt and its people. 
Yet Pharaoh, because of the hardness of his heart, he wouldn't let the children of Israel go. But there was one last plague, the most severe of all. Now, with most of the previous plagues, Israel, Israel was exempt. Their cattle didn't die. We read of that in Exodus 9 and verse 6. Their crops weren't beaten down with heel. Again, Exodus 9, verse 25. And when darkness came upon the land, we read that they had light in all their dwellings. And they didn't have to do anything to avoid those plagues. God had sovereignly and providentially ordered things that way. God had made that distinction. The final plague would be different. All the firstborn in the land would die. It tells us there from the firstborn of Pharaoh that sitteth upon the throne unto the firstborn of the maidservant that is behind the mill and all the firstborn of the beast. And we read that in verse 12 as well about all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. It doesn't say all the firstborn of the Egyptians, but all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. And of course, this would have included Israel, but for the intervention of God. Now, why, you might ask, why would this include Israel, this threatened judgment, this death? Well, the answer is quite simple. Despite the fact that Israel were God's chosen people, and despite the fact that they were oppressed for centuries, the truth is they too were sinners. They were sinners. Read in Joshua chapter 24 and verse 14, and Ezekiel chapter 20 and verse, verses 4 to 10, that they practiced idolatry when they were in Egypt. They worshipped the false gods of Egypt, and God couldn't simply ignore that sin. You see, the message of the tenth plague is that God is just, that God is holy, but the message of the Passover is that God is also merciful. And you see, in the Passover, we have the righteousness and the peace of God. They kiss each other. We see that truth and mercy is met together. And of course, it's all a foreshadowing of Christ and His work. The only way which God can remain just and also be the justifier and a deliverer of sinners. And the Passover illustratively sets before us the truths of salvation by substitution and redemption by and through the blood. Now, having forewarned Moses and Aaron about this last plague and the judgment was, that was coming, and by the way, that's grace. To be forewarned of danger is grace. Deserving danger and deserving judgment it's grace to be forewarned. And God having done that, He speaks to Moses and Aaron as He read in verse 1 of chapter 12. You see, they would have never known the way of deliverance except God had made, made it known unto them. They never would have come up with a scheme. God made it known unto them. And here we have again the truth that the Lord is the revealer of redemption as well as the accomplisher of of it. So we and Moses and the children of Israel would know nothing of redemption by blood except God had made it known unto us through His special revelation. And that's the truth again we see established. So that's the context. We're going to move 
through chapter 12 as we consider, or at least begin to consider this morning, the feast of the Passover. Now, I must say as a preacher, I'm thankful once again for the letter P when it comes to alliteration and points. I have nine in total as I just work through this chapter, but we're not going to do them all this morning, so do, do not panic. But there's nine P's in total that I come up with, and I'm sure you maybe could come up with some more. But firstly, notice with me the period of the Passover. Let's read verse 2. This month shall be unto you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. Now, Robert Hawker, a Puritan, he said, New mercies call for new memorandums. New mercies call for new memorandums. And these words of verse 2, they constitute the record of the change of calendar at the command of God. The change was introduced in the hour when these people were passing into national constitution as a theocracy a people who were coming under the direct and immediate government of God with no king except Him. And this event would mark, really it does mark, a new starting point in the history of this people. And it's a change that is directly related and connected to the institution of this Passover feast. You see, it was good in God's eyes to begin the new year with a feast that emphasized the relationship of the people to God and that brought constantly to their memory the redemptive basis of that relationship. Now, up until this point, it is believed that the Jewish New Year began in a month that they called uh, Tishri. Tishri, and that corresponds really to our September. That was the month that the Egyptians and the other pagan nations, they also considered to be the beginning of the new year. Now, I read that it's in the month Tishri that the Jews supposed God to have created the world. When the earth appeared with all its fruits in perfection, God creating a mature earth. How do we know that? Well, when Adam was placed in the Garden of Eden, the fruit was already on the trees. But here we read that God changes the beginning of the year. Now we read in the next chapter, chapter 13 and the verse 4, that the month when the children of Israel were brought out of Egypt was called Aviv. Now I know it's called Abib, but in Hebrew it's called Aviv. Aviv, those B's are pronounced V's, so, so I'm told or so I've read. So it is the month Aviv. Now this corresponds to our March and our April. And Aviv is a Hebrew word, and it means green. And it refers to the young ear of green. Now, if we go back to Exodus chapter 9 and the verse 31, we find that the barley was in the ear at this time. And so we know this is corresponding to springtime. Now, after the Babylonian captivity, this name, Aviv, was changed to Nisan. And that seems to be the Chaldean name for that month. And we read about that in Nehemiah chapter 2 and the verse 1. They, they are the same time. They are the beginning of the, the Hebrew year as it was changed by the Lord. You see, the time passed in captivity and the imminent emancipation were intended to present a striking contrast. 
And not only was this to be the first month with respect to chronology or time, but it was to be first with respect to significance, because it marked their coming out of Egypt and how that deliverance was brought about. Now, those of us who have been redeemed by precious blood and set free from Satan's bondage, we have had our new beginning. When spiritual life began to spring forth into our souls, we're made new creatures in Christ. The old things passed away, and behold, all things are becoming new. We had our beginnings, a new beginnings in our walk with God under His governance as our King. When the new year rolls around in our Gregorian calendar, well, with people and they make their New Year's resolutions, they have a fresh start. They speak about a new beginning. But the greatest new beginning that anyone can ever have is to be redeemed by the blood of Christ, to have all their sins washed away. That's truly a new start that only God can give an individual when they have their beginnings on the journey to heaven, the promised land. Now, Campbell G. Morgan, he said this, God is ever the God of new beginnings and the history of failure. Are you not glad about that? We failed to keep His law. Our lives up until we met Christ was a life of failure. I'm not talking about maybe career-wise or financial-wise, because some do quite well, but failure with respect to be righteous in God's sight. And yet God is ever the God of new beginnings in the history of failure. And the ultimate statement is found in the book of the Revelation in these words, Behold, I make all things new. All such new beginnings are founded on plenteous redemption conditioned in persistent righteousness, an issue in perfect realization. Founded on plenteous redemption, conditioned in a persistent righteousness, an everlasting righteousness, and will issue in perfect realization when God truly does make all things new at the last day. So we have the period, the period of the Passover, I'm just wondering here if I've skipped a page in my notes, but I don't think I have. No, the period of the Passover. Secondly, notice the prescription of the Passover. The prescription of the Passover. It's very fitting that the first mention with regard to this new life, this new beginning, and that which is most prominent is the Lamb. The Lamb. And we cannot miss the intent of this. The book of God is a book of the Lamb. From eternity, we have the Lamb predestined. And then in time, we have the Lamb portrayed, the Lamb promised, the Lamb prophesied, the Lamb presented, the Lamb proclaimed, the Lamb pursued. And then in eternity, there will be the Lamb praised. The book is about the Lamb. And God prescribed here what the children of Israel were to do in verses 3 and four. Let's read those verses together. Speak ye unto the congregation of Israel, saying, In the tenth day of this month they shall take to them every man a lamb, according to the house of their fathers, a lamb for an house. And if the household be too little for the lamb, 
Let him and his neighbor next unto his house take it according to the number of the souls. Every man according to his eating shall make your count for the lamb. It appears from verse 21 in this chapter that Moses gave these prescriptions, prescriptions to the elders who in turn passed it on to the people. Now a question that Calvin raises about this passage is why did a lamb have to be slain by every household when God's lamb alone was offered in sacrifice for the reconciliation of the sins of his people? When God was propitiated by the blood of one, Christ alone? Why was one lamb not offered by Moses for all the people? Surely that would have been a typical significance. Well, why, why was every house to take the lamb? Well, the suggestion is this, that it was a way to emphasize the necessity of personal interest in and exercised faith upon what God had said. And that is why every household had to take a lamb. You see, why God redeemed a multitude of people by that once-for-all sacrifice of His lamb the benefits of redemption are applied individually to his people in time as they personally exercise faith in him. It is by faith that we personally appropriate the benefits of redemption. And that's why every house was to take a lamb. That was the significance of it. It says, uh, according to the number of the soul, and therefore, that's why, well, Moses simply didn't take one lamb. It was to emphasize the fact of the necessity of personal interest in and exercised faith upon what God had said and the way that God had shown. Now, the fathers, we read there, this prescription, they were to take the lamb on the tenth day of the month. Now, I believe that these instructions were not given on the tenth day, but sometime prior, sometime before. For the Lord, I feel, would have said, you know, take a lamb today or take a lamb this day. Now, how much uh, prior to the tenth day, I, I do not know. I don't know. There's a lot of people there to communicate this message to. You couldn't send out a WhatsApp text message or a BFC, BFPC text concerning it. There had to be communication from the elders to the people, to every household, all these details concerning the lamb, what they're to do with it, what they're to do with the blood, what they're to eat it with, all the rest of it. This is something I believe that was given prior. As I said, how long prior to the tenth day, I do not know. What I do know is the Jewish months, they followed the lunar cycle. And the new, new moon was the beginning of the month. Now, when I looked at that, I found that interesting. For when the actual evening of the Passover came, it would have been the time for the full moon to be in the sky. The full moon. And with the death angel passing through the land at midnight, and Pharaoh calling for Moses and Aaron in the night to tell the people to leave, I see here God providentially providing for His people a great light in the sky to aid their exodus. 
in the darkness of the night. Yet it was in the 14th day, right in the middle of the lunar cycle, when the full moon would have been in the sky, God, He provided a light for the way. I believe, as I said, these instructions given prior to the 10th day, it will given time for the elders to communicate these instructions to the people, and it also given the people time to prepare. After all, this is the first time that this feast was going to be observed. And, you know, the first time you do anything, it always takes a little longer to prepare for. Now, in verse 4, we see God's accommodation for these people in this prescription. For if the household was too small, and if they could not eat the whole lamb, well, then they were to join themselves to another household. They were to work this out according to every man's eating. See, all who would eat would be sufficed. While at the same time, none of the lamb was to be left over and thus be redundant. And we notice that it, the verse says nothing about the lamb being too little for the household, but the household being too little for the lamb. And in this we see the sufficiency and the efficiency of the lamb set before us. Now, Reformed theology has traditionally stated that the sacrificial work of Christ is sufficient for all. For all. That is, the meritorious value and the infinite worth of Christ's sacrifice was sufficient to cover all the sins of all the people if that had been God's intention. You see, it is Christ's offering alone that satisfies God, could ever satisfy God. It is His offering alone that is sufficient, for His was an offering like no other. Yet at the same time, Christ's atonement is only efficient for some. Not everyone receives the full benefits wrought by Christ's saving work on the cross. Only those who trust in Him, whose sins are imputed to Him, whose sins are atoned by Him, the elect, all the elect. You see, there was nothing redundant or superfluous in the work of Christ. It's not that He died for all men, and yet some are lost. You see, that would mean that the merits of the sacrifice, they would be untouched left over, redundant, we might say, but that is not the case. Rather, we state that the sacrificial work of Christ and of the Lamb of God was sufficient for all because of its worth, and yet only efficient for some because of its intent. And we see that here in this Lamb. You see, it doesn't speak about the house being uh, or sorry, the lamb being too little for the house, but the house being too little for the lamb. And there's the sufficiency of the lamb. But also where they were to join together, they were to work out according to every man's eating, and therefore it was efficient for all that were gathered there. There was nothing to be left over. There was nothing redundant. And therefore we see that in the work of the Lord Jesus Christ because of its infinite worth a sacrifice and blood like no other, if God had it intended, that offering fully satisfied, 
and was sufficient to appease the wrath of God, and yet at the same time it was God's intent, and it is efficient only for the elect and all the elect. Nothing redundant in it. Nothing wasted by it. It was a sufficient and an efficient work that Christ accomplished. So we have thought about the period of the Passover the prescription of the Passover. Thirdly, we notice the particulars of the Passover, and especially the particulars of the Paschal Lamb in verse 5. It tells us there, Your lamb shall be without blemish. The meal of the first year, ye shall take it out from the sheep or from the goats. And since the lamb was to be a substitute, and since this was the Lord's Passover, something that was Godward in its nature, towards God, well then these particulars, they are important. There's a significance in them. And here we have three, three types of the characteristics of Christ, the Lamb of God. Firstly, the Lamb in these particulars was to be a pure Lamb. It was to be without blemish. Now the Hebrew word for blemish, it means completeness or sound. So this goes further than just a lamb that didn't have any bruises or cuts or tears or marks. This was a lamb that wasn't lame, it wasn't missing any limbs, wasn't deficient in any part. Already quoted the Apostle Peter's words in 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 18, the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish and without spot. And that reference there gives us the validation of this Passover lamb as a type of Christ. Now, in this requirement, in this particular, without blemish, we have the doctrine of the sinlessness of Christ. That's what's set before us here. And Christ's sinless life is set against the background of the scriptural testimony to the sinfulness of man. Eliphaz, in the book of Job, he declared that man is abominable and filthy, and he drinketh iniquity like water. King Solomon, he acknowledged in 1 Kings 8.46, there is no man that sinneth not. The prophet Isaiah, he said, we are all as an unclean thing. The apostle John, he warned that if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and the word is not in us. And Paul sums it all up in Romans 3, verse 10. There is none righteous, no, not one. Yet when the Son of God took to Himself a human nature, being conceived by the Holy Ghost, formed from the substance of Mary's womb, therefore free from the corruption of original sin, a sinless man entered into time and space and lived upon this earth. In a life that spanned three decades, the Lord Jesus, He never entertained a thought. He never uttered a word. He never carried out an action that was defiled by impure motives. He always honored His Father in heaven. He always honored His mother Mary and Joseph upon earth. He never lusted, never uttered a word in sinful anger, never gossiped or slandered His neighbor. He never stole, he never lied, he never coveted. In short, he submitted to every commandment of the law of God without wavering. 
He loved the Lord with all his heart, his soul, his mind, and his strength, and he loved his neighbor as himself. No blemishes, no flaws, no faults in his character or in his conduct. And you know, it's not, and I thought about this, it's not that he carried that perfection around in some stoic, stiff, regimental manner, but with the sweetest and most loving spirit. The perfection, the sinlessness of Christ, Jesus, the man, the God. The Scriptures, they also bear manifold witness to the truth of the sinlessness of Christ. At the announcement of His birth, the angel spoke of Him as that holy thing or holy one. We read in the book of Hebrews that Christ was holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners. The Apostle Paul, he boldly asserts, 2 Corinthians 5, 21, that Jesus, he knew no sin. Even the demons recognized that he was the Holy One of God. Christ, he bore witness to his own sinlessness when he referred to himself in John 7. Turn to John 7, verse 18. That's a wonderful statement. John 7, verse 18, it tells us here, He that seeketh His glory that sent Him. And that's the Father's glory. He's speaking of Himself, because He came not to do His own will, but the will of Him that sent Him. He that seeketh His glory that sent Him. The same is true, and no unrighteousness is in Him. He told His disciples that there's no sinful inclination in Him to which the prince of this world can appeal or entice to sin through temptation in John 14, verse 30. So sure was he of his own sinlessness that he was able to put out the challenge in John 8, 46, which of you convinceth me of sin? See, our redemption rests, rests upon not only the death of Christ, the atoning work, but a sinless life. We're told in Hebrews 9 verse 14 that He offered Himself without spot to God to purge our sins. And only an offering, a blemish-free, sinless offering would be satisfactory to God. It was a pure lamb, the particulars of this Passover. But the Paschal Lamb was also to be a prime lamb. A prime lamb. Back there, you turn back to verse 5 of Exodus chapter 12, tells us there it was to be a meal of the first year. This was a lamb in the prime of life, not in the infancy of days or the twilight of years, but one in full vigor and vitality, strength and stature, and Christ was crucified at the age of 33 and a half, in the prime of his manhood. If you're around that age and here, 33, that's the prime of your manhood. I remember a man in my own church, uh, and he did say to me, he's a farmer, uh, must have maybe turned 40, and he says, well, you'll find, and it's true, the man reaches 30, he's got that core strength, He's full of vigor and vitality and strength and stature. 
He's reached his full development of maturity, physically, we might say, but we could also say, well, mentally, he's able to make good and right decisions. So here's Christ, and he's in the prime of his manhood. He had come to the full maturity in his humanity. You see, because Christ did have that natural development as a true man. If you go over to Luke chapter 2 and the verse 40, we read about this, and it's speaking here of the boy Jesus, the child Jesus. It tells us there in Luke chapter 2 and the verse 40, And the child grew, and waxed strong in spirit, filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. And then go on down in verse 52 of the same chapter. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. So in the prime of life, in the prime of manhood and adulthood and coming to full maturity in his development and his humanity, Christ was offered as a sacrifice to God. See, the devil tried to kill Christ. As a child, as a baby, with that decree from Herod. But those plans were thwarted because Christ must die upon the cross. In the prime of his manhood. To use an expression, Christ. Christ, at the time of his death, was in the prime of life. He didn't die he didn't live to old age. We are told he was cut off in the midst of his years. And what does that teach us? It teaches us he was in the prime of his manhood. It teaches us that only the best, with nothing lacking and nothing diminishing, is what God requires, the best. Spurgeon made this comment, on this, the prime, or a meal of the first year. He did not give himself to die for us when he was a youth, for he would not then have given all he was to be. He did not give himself to die for us when he was in old age, for then he would have given himself when he was in decay. But just in his maturity, in his very prime, then Jesus, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. The Passover lamb was to be a pure lamb, a prime lamb. It was also to be a particular lamb. For it was to be taken there, go back to verse 5 of Exodus 12, it was to be taken out from the sheep or from the goats. It was a lamb that was chosen out from among others of its own kind. It's true that the Lord Jesus is the chosen of God from all eternity. And the Lord declares that in Isaiah chapter 42 and verse 1, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, mine elect, and whom my soul delighteth. The word elect there is chosen one. And God provided himself a lamb in the councils of eternity when divine choice was made concerning his son to be the Redeemer. But the Son of God became man. He was made like unto us. He took not on him the nature of angels, but the seed of Abraham, and therefore was one who was taken out from among the sheep. He could stand as a substitute for us. 
because he was made in the likeness of men. He was a particular lamb, a chosen out lamb from among all of mankind. For he was the pure and the prime lamb of God. I'm going to end there this morning. We don't have time to deal with the next point. But we have thought about the period of the Passover. It marked a new beginning in Israel's history and how good it is for us to remember the new beginning that Christ has given to us. We've considered the prescription of the Passover, the sufficiency and the efficiency of the Lamb, and also the particulars of the Passover, the pure, the prime, the particular lamb. The requirements given by God concerning the lamb that was to be slain. Next time, Lord willing, we're going to consider the procedure, the partaking, the preparation, the protection, the practice, and the prohibition of the Passover. But may the Lord bless His word to our hearts this morning. Let's just bow in prayer. And let's rejoice that we are those who have a new beginning. And praise His name, it is because of redemption by the blood. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do rejoice for the clear, typical significance that we see of Jesus Christ in the Passover feast. We thank Thee that Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. Wonderful truths truth of substitution in that verse for us, in the place of, for the benefit of. Oh, we thank Thee, Father, that we have been redeemed by precious blood. We thank Thee, Lord, for our new beginnings, our life of past failure and sin, falling short of Thy standard. And yet, Lord, we thank Thee for Christ. Help us to ever consider the Lamb. Help us, Lord, now, since he has been presented in time, presented as an offering, help us to pursue the Lamb. Help us to proclaim the Lamb. For someday we shall praise the Lamb for all eternity. Bless the Word. Bless our coming together this morning. My servant, the Reverend Greers, who preached the Word. May the Lord be glorified. Hear our prayer. For this we ask in Jesus' precious and worthy name. Amen.